Well, this passage before us today is one uh, in which, with which I found it difficult to really identify. Uh, and I suspect that that's true for most of us here today. Uh, Jesus is saying something about his mission here in verse 31. Uh, over the, the, we're, we're at the halfway point of the book, and in the first uh, seven chapters on into this eighth chapter, Mark is giving us several different uh, accounts of Jesus' life, demonstrating for us Jesus' power. Uh, he heals, he casts out demons, uh, showing us that Jesus is, is indeed the Son of God, that he is divine. Now in the second part of the book, uh, we're beginning to see, okay, this person who is the Son of God, this powerful one, this, this king who's come, uh, what's the nature of his mission? Why did he come to earth? And Mark is now beginning to lay that out for us as we see here in this passage. So in verse 31, uh, Jesus is telling us something, really a summary statement of the mission that he is on. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, when the text tells us that he said this plainly, I find that very uh, odd and interesting that, that Mark makes note of that, that Jesus said this plainly. Why does he need to say that? Why is that there? Well, it means that Jesus said these things without any concealment, very openly, in a matter-of-fact way. Uh, he said it with... Uh, boldness, if you will. He, he just came out with it. And it, he wasn't trying to be uh, in any way uh, hazy about the truth that he was stating. He just set it out in the open, plainly, without concealment. And, of course, we say, yes, certainly. There's nothing shocking or disturbing about these facts of Jesus' sufferings, death, and resurrection. I mean, we have had uh, 2,000 years to digest this information because it happened 2,000 years ago, and we know that it happened. Now, because of this, it's difficult for us to identify with Peter's reaction to this plain teaching of Jesus. Why did Peter get so upset about it? Verse 32 tells us that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him based on what Jesus had just told them. Now, the word rebuke here means to strongly express disapproval. Peter strongly disapproved of what Jesus was saying. And this is done often in a heated manner. And it means to condemn in the strongest possible manner. So Peter is trying to set Jesus straight about some things. He's, he's actually condemning what Jesus is saying here, why? Why does Peter react so strongly to this statement of Jesus about the nature of his mission? Well, the reaction, uh, the reason Peter reacts, has this reaction that is so strong, is because of his cultural conditioning. He has been trained throughout all of his life, undoubtedly, to think a certain way about the Messiah. And what Jesus says in verse 31 about himself goes completely against the grain of what Peter has been taught his whole life 
about the Messiah. And not just Peter, but all of the Israelites as well. The fact that the Messiah would come and then die, that never entered their thought process. It wasn't something that was taught in those days. They were expecting the Christ to come, the Messiah to come once and for all and and complete his mission in one stage. But we know that there's two stages to that. He comes, he suffers, he dies to save his people from their, their sins, and he's going to come again in glory and power. They were just looking for the glory and power part specifically for the nation of Israel. Now, uh, in the past, I read about these experiments that were conducted where the subjects wore a device called a stereopticon. Maybe you've got one in your closet at the house. Probably not. It's a device that you wear over your eyes, and this device flashes a different image to each of your eyes. So two different images at once flash before your eyes. And then the researchers asked the subjects to describe the image that they saw. So, for example, a picture of a baseball player is flashed up simultaneously in one eye and while in the other eye, simultaneously with a baseball player, a bullfighter is flashed up. Well, if you're a Mexican, you saw the bullfighter and you described the bullfighter. But the Americans all described the baseball player. The researchers decided that this was because of cultural conditioning. They were conditioned to see certain things. It it was familiar to them, and they could accept the baseball player, the Americans, the the baseball player, but not the bullfighter. This is what Peter was. This is what was happening with Peter when Jesus starts talking about the Messiah. When he identifies uh, Jesus as the Messiah, he has an idea of what the Messiah is like. And then when Jesus says what he says about suffering and dying, it does not fit in with his cultural conditioning, and therefore he rebukes Jesus. Let's look for a moment at what Peter was conditioned to think about the Messiah. Look at exactly what Jesus states, specifically who Jesus says will suffer and die. He says it's the Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer and die. Now, if you've read through the New Testament, you'll know that Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. This was, in fact, his favorite title for himself. Why? Did you ever ask why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man? It's not like these athletes in our day and time who always refer to themselves in the third person. You know, Bo was a great athlete. You know, I'm Bo Jackson, and I'm great. You know, Bo knows these things. There was a TV show on Bo Jackson on last night. I didn't watch it because I was preparing for this sermon. I would really like to see it, though. But you know how they are. They refer to themselves in the third person. Was Jesus just being calling himself the Son of Man because, it was, because he's the king? Well, no. The term Son of Man is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament is used 94 times. And with five exceptions, always by Christ of himself. So we have Jesus saying this about almost 90 times about himself. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 29 times. Clearly, Jesus is affirming something about himself in his selection and use of this particular term. What is he affirming? Here's the answer. In using the term Son of Man, Jesus is referring to a well-known vision by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel sees this vision, and he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is saying, I am the Son of Man Daniel saw in his vision, the one who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, the one to whom all peoples and nations and language will serve, the one who has, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, one whose kingdom shall never be destroyed. So why does Peter rebuke Jesus? Because certainly in his mind, in the minds of the Jews of the day, the Son of Man should not suffer and die, but should be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will never pass away, and everybody should, should uh, be subject to him. He's going to come back, and he's going to be uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is the Davidic king. And they envisioned a return of the great Davidic kingdom in its power, the glory days of Israel, not suffering and death. Peter, like I said before, has just proven himself to be the star of the disciples, the pupil, the great pupil. But Peter and the others were never taught that the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, must suffer and die. So they didn't apply passages that we would apply from the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, to the Messiah. They would have read Isaiah 53 and thought, what in the world is this talking about? Who is this talking about? It certainly isn't talking about the Messiah, they would think. That's why Peter rebukes Jesus. Now in turn, when... Peter pulls Jesus aside and uh, you know, tries to straighten him out about some things. Jesus rebukes Peter. And it's the same word for rebuke that is used of Peter in verse 32. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes him right back. Jesus here condemns Peter in the strongest possible manner. Now a derivative of this word for rebuke is used actually in chapter 3 verse 12. When Jesus commands the demons, he strictly orders them to uh, not say anything about him. He, he tells these demons that, and he does so with the understanding that there's an underlying threat to that. So make no mistake that Jesus is speaking to Peter in the strongest possible manner in a way that Jesus speaks to demons. That's how serious Jesus is taking this rebuke by Peter. And in fact... He goes and calls Peter Satan himself. He looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Why does Jesus react so strongly to Peter's rebuke? Calling Peter Satan sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Until we remember what Satan had said to Jesus according to Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and said, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give these kingdoms to you. Now, we've already noted that Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, and all kingdoms uh, will be his. He will have an everlasting dominion. So all that Satan was promising to Jesus was going to be his, is going to be his. But what, G what Satan is promising Jesus 
what he's offering, was to get that dominion and kingdom the easy way, without suffering and dying. See, Jesus knew he had to come and suffer and die so that he could win people's hearts, conquer their hearts. But Satan is offering a power grab. You know, get it the easy way. If you'll worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. And you can cut out the, the middle part of the suffering and dying. So Satan had tempted Jesus with the prospect of winning the kingdom through the way of pride and power and taking charge, not of humility and weakness and obedience. He was being tempted by Satan to achieve his kingship exactly as the popular imagination of the day envisioned the Messiah's career. And that's just exactly what Peter's doing. Peter is tempting Jesus in the same way that Satan tempted Jesus. He's saying, you should never die. You're the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, no. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus describes Peter's error in verse 33. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And when he says setting your mind on, he means to give serious consideration to something, to ponder it, to, to let your mind dwell on it to think about it continuously, to fix your attention on it, to concentrate on something. He says you're concentrating on human things, not on the things of God. Now all this background to say this, to ask this question, and I want us to ponder this today. How can we avoid Peter's error and set our mind on the things of God, not the things of man? And I've come up with it at least three traps. I've come up with three traps. There's, there may be more. But these three things that we need to avoid in order to fall into Peter's error and therefore rebuke are preconceived notions, personal agendas, and partial truths. Three Ps today for you from a Presbyterian. Isn't that interesting? So first thing, we need to beware of preconceived notions. This is really what this chapter is all about. Uh, we've already uh, talked about this last week, about the danger of having preconceived notions of who Jesus is. Peter had preconceived notions about the Messiah, as we've been pointing out. He wanted Jesus to fulfill these preconceived notions about who he thought Jesus should be. And he was not open, and open to listening to what Jesus was teaching or what all the Scriptures was saying about the Messiah. I mean, how can one read Isaiah 53 and not understand that the Son of Man must suffer and die? I mean, these are well-known passages if, uh, if you've ever read them. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We read that and say, of course, that's that's a wonderful uh, chapter about Jesus and his great sacrifice for sin. That he could provide salvation for us. But the Jews in Peter's day thought this was talking about someone else, not the Messiah. They could never conceive that this was referring to the Messiah. They had read this passage, but they read right over it without understanding that it was really talking about the future 
Christ the Messiah. Now, we don't do it to that passage, but we can do the same. We can uh, bring our preconceived notions to God's Word, to His plain teaching, and we can have an idea of the way that He is and miss what Jesus is actually teaching in Scripture. I, I, this happened to me, and I'm sure it happens to me uh, continuously. Anytime we become arrogant about it or think we know everything, and of course, you know, the Bible teaches this, we always need to come with an open mind and an open heart to God's Word. Now, I didn't grow up a Presbyterian. I became a Presbyterian because I came to believe that Presbyterianism is faithful to the teaching of the Bible. But I was raised in quite a different tradition that, that actually holds beliefs and theological positions that are quite radically different from Presbyterianism. And when I was a young believer, I was quite zealous to defend those positions, and I opposed vehemently theological positions which I now wholeheartedly embrace. I've done a complete 180 in some ways. But the change came when I stopped reading my preconceived notions into the Bible and opened myself up to the plain teaching of Scripture. As I encountered God's Word and read things there that didn't agree with what I'd been told all my life or what I'd thought all my life, it was disturbing to me. And I could have easily said, well, that's not what I've always been taught. And I'm going to pick and choose what I want to listen to and hear. But I had been taught that the Bible was God's Word, all of it. And so I began to think, have I arrived at my beliefs on this subject because I listened to other people? Or did I listen to the Bible and actually looked at what it said. And I said to myself, maybe the way I have always been taught is wrong. What does the Bible actually say about this topic? Let God's Word do the teaching, I told myself. And when I dropped my preconceived notions about God and the way He acts, I began to see and understand in a way that I never could have conceived. The light came on for me. And it's brought me more joy and peace than I would have ever believed, believing these things that I had rejected before. If Peter would have dropped his preconceived notions and listened submissively to Jesus' plain teaching, then he would have never gotten rebuked. The same is true of us. Jesus tells us to ponder, to dwell on, to keep thinking about, to fix one's attention on the things that are of God that are taught plainly in His Word. They're there for us. Open yourself up to that. So beware of preconceived notions. Also beware of personal agendas. Peter had an agenda for the Messiah. His notion of the Messiah was one uh, that meant restoration for Israel, that this nation of Israel would once again become great and glorious like it once had. But Jesus came not just to have dominion over Israel, not just to have the kingdom of Israel, but to have people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And Peter's going to embrace that. In fact, he's going to be the first to embrace this concept that, that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. In, in Acts, he's the first one to break down that barrier. But he didn't get it here. And he had a, he had a nationalistic agenda for the Messiah. And the disciples don't really come to grips with this until after the ascension in Acts chapter 1 and 2. They were interested in what Jesus would do for them or give them, uh, not as much in Jesus himself. And there's a difference there. 
Have you, ever, have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, if you'll do this for me, then I will never get myself into this situation again. Or if you will provide this for me, then I'll go to church or I'll do this. When you say that prayer, you're really not interested in Jesus himself. You're more interested in what Jesus can give you. See, Jesus wants your heart. We want stuff. I know some people have said, you know, I'm going to tithe so the Lord will bless me. Well, okay, the Lord has promised a blessing when we tithe. But when you have that attitude, what are you really desiring? Do you want money and stuff? I want the Lord to bless me. Are you seeking the blessing or are you seeking the blesser? That's a distinction. A personal agenda. You have to drop those when you come to the Lord. Instead of saying, Lord, I want certain things from you, you should pray, Jesus, I want you. And that's what God wants to give us. That's what Jesus wants. He wants our hearts. He doesn't. And if, and if, and if we're set on the blessings, then our hearts are not with Jesus. They're on what he can give us. So beware of personal agendas. And that is very tricky for us. It's easy to get our hearts set on the things of this world. That's, these health, that's why these health and welfare gospel preachers on TV are so successful, that they get people all excited about what the Lord can give them, that you know, God will give you this car and you know, it will get you out of debt and all these things. Well, what they're actually promoting is a God of materialism, a little g God of materialism, you know, having people desire the blessing and not really desire God himself. So be, beware of personal agendas. Peter had a personal agenda. He wanted a, this king to come and make Israel great again. But Jesus had a bit, much bigger and better plan than that. And he's got that for you as well. Jesus wants to bless you, yes. But he's got bigger things than just blessings. A relationship with the God of this universe is on offer. Now finally, beware of partial truths. And this really is uh, an important part Uh, of what happens here in this passage. Peter had a limited view of God. He had a very limited view of God. When Jesus says what he says in verse 31, he says the Son of Man must suffer many things. Must. And that word must there means it is absolutely necessary. It's not just inevitable. It's necessary. Both are true. It was inevitable. It had been prophesied. And Jesus was very careful to say that on times, to fulfill Scripture. Jesus did certain things. So when he says this, the, the, the Son of Man must suffer, he's not just saying the Son of Man must suffer because it's been prophesied that he will suffer. No, he's saying not only is it inevitable, but it is absolutely necessary that he comes and he provides atonement for sin. It is the only way. It is the absolute necessary only way of salvation. It can't happen any other way. So yes, it is a fulfillment of prophecy, but it is the only way that God can be faithful to his character. You know, the, the great question that we face is, how can God be holy and how can God be merciful at the same time? How can God be just and how can he be merciful? How can he forgive sinners and still maintain his holiness and justice? 
I mean, we could say, well, God is God, and He could have just swept our sins under the rug. But see, that would violate His justice. It would not be the right or fair thing to do, and He would cease to be God if He did that. And if we just want God to be a loving God and not a just God or a holy God, then we've created a God after our own image. And it's a partial truth. It's not the real and true God. Or if we just focus on God being a holy God uh, and and a just God, we can uh, come across as harsh. And that, that sacrifices the great love of God. God is love. How can you sacrifice that? Peter had a partial view of God. And he wanted God, uh, Christ, the Messiah, to do things in a way that was not consistent with his character. And Jesus used that little word must that's so important. He must do this. It must happen this way. Because God is faithful to who he is. And the only way that he can be both loving and just is to send his only son into the world to be a sacrifice for sins. And let him, the, the ultimate demonstration of love, bear justice on the cross for our sin so that God's justice is satisfied and his love is declared and they meet together and therefore people can have peace with God because of what he did there. If you have a partial view of God, you take away uh, the heart of the atonement and it's very popular to do. A lot of people want to do that in our day and time. They, want to say, they, they find it distasteful that God is the kind of God that would pour his wrath out on his son, that, that Jesus would bear a penalty. And they say, no, Jesus was just being a moral example. Uh, he was just showing, it was just a great demonstration of his love. Well, yes, it was, but it's so much more than that. And when you limit it to that, it grabs and reaches and, and tears out the very heart of the good news of salvation. That, and, it, and it makes him a less loving God and a less just God. So God has become less than he is and until he's not God at all. It's very, very necessary that we listen to what Jesus says here and understand that, yes, he must suffer, he must die, and he must rise again. That's the only way that we can be saved. And, it, and it's distasteful to us because it's the only way humans can be saved. It tells us, because Jesus had to do it this way, that there was no other way for us to be saved. That means you can't be good enough to save yourself. And we don't like to hear that. It's not. It's insulting. It's insulting to us. It means that you're so sinful, nothing but the death of the Son of God could save you. He had to die for you. For you. Your moral efforts... Uh, will be to no avail. Every human heart wants to believe that our goodness, our good record, we're a pretty good people. We want to believe that's good enough. And so either implicitly or explicitly, we deny the necessity of his death. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I must do this for you. It's the only way that you can be saved. So how can we avoid Peter's error and set our minds on the things of God to uh, to, not on the things of, of man. Well, we've got to avoid our preconceived notions, our personal agendas, and our partial truth. Beware of all these things. And I pray that during this Christmas season, as we reflect on the incarnation of Christ, His coming to earth, and what He came to do, and the fact that He's coming back again, that we will set our minds on these things and give serious consideration to these things and, and renew our minds and be transformed 
transformed by the renewing of our minds, as it says in Romans 12. Let's pray together.